had the Apostle Paul said it, he said to me, if you were not raised, this is a colossal waste of our time. Hmm. But in fact, you have been raised from the dead. And not only raised, but you are ascended. And you are seated at the right hand of your Father in glory. And you will come again in that glory one day to judge the living and the dead. And your kingdom will have no end. This morning, Father, I, I pray that this would be a moment in, in somebody's life, maybe a number of people's lives this morning, where they marked forever, stamped indelibly, put a, put a flag in the ground as to where they stand with reference to Jesus. I pray, Father, that you would draw people into saving faith in Jesus Christ in these moments. And Lord, those that have come safely within the walls of the gospel this morning, I pray that they would be edified and built up and encouraged and helped and sent out into this Resurrection Sunday. For indeed, Christ has been raised from the dead. In Jesus' name, amen. At this time, I'll invite you to open a Bible this morning to Daniel chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. The last and final time for quite a while, we'll probably ask you to open to the book of Daniel, chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. If you'd like to use one of the red Bibles in the seats, the text begins on page 750, those red Bibles in the seats in front of you, page 750, Daniel 12, beginning in verse 1. Well, the year was, was 1978. It was one year after I was born. A 24-year-old Christian singer-songwriter by the name of Keith Green was growing in popularity, and for good reason. His first record, entitled For Him Who Has Ears to Hear, was an explosion of worship and a celebration of the gospel and very raw confession that had really not been heard in Christian music at that point, particularly using the contemporary language that he used. He and his wife, Melody, wrote songs that hold, hold up surprisingly well even today. Uh, but 1978 is where we start because 1978 was the year of his second record, which is entitled No Compromise. No Compromise. And this album in particular is a, is a treat to me for a number of reasons. Uh, one of the reasons is not just the content of the album, but the, the artwork of the record. It almost became the artwork for our sermon series, were it not for copyright issues. Uh, the artwork on the front is an ancient Near Eastern scene sketched, and it looks to be ancient Babylon. And then it looks as though there's a king in the background that's being carried by servants, court servants. And in the foreground are dozens of people bowed, knees to the earth, faces on the ground, worshiping this king. Dozens and dozens of people, except for one. The artwork depicts a man, Middle Eastern man, I suppose, one lone individual standing ramrod straight in defiance to the king's order. As the title of the record suggests, no compromise. There's no doubt that my favorite song on the album is the fifth track called Asleep in the Light. The song is a stinging indictment of the 
decadent and complacent and self-absorbed church as Keith Green saw it at the end of the 1970s in this nation. If I understand it correctly, Asleep in the Light was actually inspired by a vision of William Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army. William Booth has a, a famous vision where he dreamed of multitudes of unsaved people cascading into hell and the people of God doing little to nothing about it all around them. Keith Green was so moved by the vision of William Booth that he wrote these words to the church. How can you be so numb not to care if they come? You close your eyes and pretend the job's done. The world is sleeping in the dark that the church can't fight because it's asleep in the light. How can you be so dead when you've been so well fed? Jesus rose from the grave and you can't even get out of bed. Exclamation point. Asleep in the light. Is that possible? Oh yeah. In fact, it's actual. It's happening in churches all across our nation today. Slumbering shepherds, slumbering sheep, the ancient prophecy of Nahum 3.17 is relevant to churches today. Nahum 3.17 says, Your shepherds are asleep, your nobles slumber, your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. So slumbering shepherds equals scattered sheep. That's really the biblical picture. Or perhaps you recall the words of our Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane to Peter, James, and John, Matthew 26, 40 and following, when he says, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Sleep and take your rest later on. Learn perhaps what is the most frightening of Jesus' parables in what's called the Olivet Discourse. Jesus tells the story of the ten virgins in Matthew 25. And it's verse 5, Matthew 25, 5, that's been under my skin for some time now, uh, preparing for this sermon series. Matthew 25, 5, uh, Jesus describes that in the last days, just prior to his return, the people of God will get sleepy. In the end time, Christ followers will become tired and lethargic and sluggish sluggish toward the things of God and the mission of the gospel. Matthew 25, 5, Jesus says, as the bridegroom was delayed, like 2,000 years, as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. Friends, there's no temptation that's overtaken these 10 virgins that's not common to us. Amen? So what's the answer? The answer is Ephesians 5.14. Ephesians 5.14 says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall shine on you. Awake, O sleeper. Saying that to the church. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Here's the big idea today. In the end time, Christ himself said, Many saints will slumber. But we have so many reasons to stay awake. I'll say that again. In the end time, 
Christ himself said that many saints will slumber, but we have so many reasons to stay awake. In the time that remains this morning, I'd like to offer three reasons for us not to slumber as a church. Three reasons, three motives drawn from today's text to stay broad awake in these last days. In the end time, Christ himself said many saints will slumber, but we have so many reasons to stay awake. So here's the first reason to stay alert. Point number one, Jacob's future tribulation is not just Jacob's problem. Jacob's future tribulation is not just Jacob's problem. Follow along with me and I'll read Daniel 12 into the first half of verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge over your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as has never been since there was a nation till that time. Some of you have asked me who I believe the restrainer of 2 Thessalonians 2 is. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul says that a restrainer, a person of some kind, is going to be fighting alongside Israel in the last days, holding back or restraining the emergence of the Antichrist in the end times. I believe that Daniel 12, 1, as well as Daniel 10, 13 and Daniel 10, 21, tell us that the restrainer is right here. Michael, the angel Michael. I think he's the patron angel of the Jewish people. Some people hold other views, but my money's on Michael. Michael's the restrainer during the time of tribulation referred to by Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2. And here in Daniel 12, 1, we have yet another reference to the great tribulation. This is the same period of time we've studied repeatedly over these months in Daniel 2, uh, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 9, Daniel 10, and 11. This period, Jesus, say, Jesus says, would be marked by wars and rumors of wars in the Middle East. It's during this time that the Antichrist will rise and reign over the fourth kingdom, according to Daniel 2, or the fourth beast, according to Daniel 7. It's the same period that's going to feature an unprecedented era of peace for Israel and her neighbors for a time to the point where a seven-year peace treaty will be drawn up and the building of the third Jewish temple will begin. It's the same period, three and a half years, when Antichrist will break his peace treaty with Israel. He will, after 42 months, reneging on the covenant and then desecrating the temple, what scripture refers to as the abomination of desolation. And it's this same period, this period of trouble, this period of tribulation, uh, Daniel 12, 1, that Jesus says in Matthew 24, starting in verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Daniel 12, 1 is very specific about the Israel centricity of the Great Tribulation. Very specific. Verse 1 There shall be a time of trouble, such as never been since there was a nation, nation of Israel, until that time. This is why Jeremiah 30, verse 7, refers to this period as a time of distress for Jacob or the time of Jacob's trouble. Now, 
the Jews know a bit about suffering, don't they? From Assyria to Babylon, from Persia to Rome, from the ghettos of Europe to the pogroms of Russia, these people have suffered exquisitely. And yet nothing, nothing in the history of the people of Israel, nothing from the time of Abraham to the time of Auschwitz, nothing will compare with the trouble that awaits this nation in the last days. Nothing's even close. Israel undoubtedly has her foes in the Middle East, to be sure. In fact, she's surrounded by a sea of enemies, geographically speaking. But if I read the prophecies correctly, Israel will look for help even from her allies in those last days and find none. In the last days, even nations like ours in the West, even like ours, will fail to come to Israel's aid. I heard a lot of talk this past week, perhaps you did too, from the presidential frontrunners about being an ally of Israel. Well, not in the end time. The about face that the West will do to Israel will be spine chilling. Dalton Thomas is an American missionary and church leader serving with his family in northern Iraq today. Five years ago, he wrote these words. The church's sacrificial identification with the Jewish people in the future time of trouble is not an option. It's a requirement. It is a biblical command, a scriptural mandate, and it will be the proverbial line in the sand that separates the faithful from the apostate in the end of the age. Or to put it in more biblical terms, Thomas says, how we treat Jesus' Jewish brethren in their final extremity will be the scenario through which Jesus will test the hearts of the sons of men and ultimately separate the sheep from the goats. He will measure the church's authenticity and relationship to him through her obedience to the scriptural mandate to stand with Israel in her great trouble. End quote. That is powerful. If you were here last week, you may recall me saying something along the lines that if I could outlaw the doctrine of the pre-tribulational rapture, I would be happy to pass such legislation. I probably need to back up a little bit and hedge that. We don't make the timing of the tribulation a matter of first importance in this church. It's not anywhere near our statement of faith. You can have any view on the tribulation that you wish, including the pre-trib view. We're not going to kick up a fuss about that. The free church has been and will always be a home for people who believe in the pre-trib rapture. But when the tribulation begins and when the Antichrist is revealed and we're all still here, we won't kick up a fuss if you change your view on the rapture. Mid-trib, pre-rap, post-trib rapture, for this preacher anyway, seems to fit the evidence a little closer. 
Those who expect to be exempt from the tribulation because they're a member of the church, the great tribulation, have to deal straight up with the words of Jesus in John 16, 33, promising us that in this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Or as Jesus teaches in the Olivet Discourse about our treatment of the Jews in the tribulation, Matthew 25, 40, truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these, what? My brothers, you did to me. So in the end time, many saints will slumber. But we have so many reasons to stay awake. The first of which would be that Jacob's future tribulation is not just Jacob's problem. Second reason to stay awake in the time of the end. Jesus' bodily resurrection is your only hope for everlasting life. Jesus' bodily resurrection is your and my, our only hope for everlasting life. Let's read all of verse 1 now, followed by verse 2. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge over your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting shame and contempt. Does it surprise us sometimes when we encounter the doctrine of resurrection in places other than the end of the passion narratives in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? It surprises us sometimes. We hear the word resurrection and we immediately think Easter. And I suppose that's not half bad. Uh, it's better than thinking of bunnies and baskets and pastels. Easter Sunday is Resurrection Sunday in the Christian church, and Jesus certainly was resurrected from the dead 2,000 years ago. You can bank on that. But the teaching concerning resurrection, the doctrine of resurrection, is one that has deep roots in the Old Testament, roots that find their origin in passages like Daniel 12, verse 2. The teaching concerning resurrection, life beyond the grave, and not only life beyond the grave, but life beyond the grave in physical bodies clothed in immortality, that's as old as Daniel 12 too. And faithful Jews in Jesus' day believed it. Yes, they did. Martha believed in resurrection. You know that story? The story of Lazarus? Jesus said to Martha in John eleven twenty three, your brother will rise again. Remember that? And what did Martha say to him? Uh, John eleven twenty four. Martha said to him, I, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She's a good Jewish girl. She knows her Bible. She knew Daniel 12, too. Or take Luke 20, 27. Luke alerts us to the presence in Daniel 20, or Luke 20, 27 of the Sadducees. Luke points out for his Gentile audience, for those of us who may not know, the Sadducees, unlike the Pharisees, were really odd birds. These guys, the Sadducees, didn't even believe in the resurrection of the body. And they were supposed to be Bible-believing Jews. Luke says it plain as day in, in Luke 20, 27. There came to Jesus some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. Can you believe it? Uh, Bibles, Jewish Bible scholars that denied the resurrection of the body? 
as Al Davis pointed me out years ago, that's why they are sad, you see. <laughs> but most of the Jews did believe in the resurrection of the body. They took Daniel 12 to at face value. They trembled at the teaching of resurrection. It was their hope. I'll read it again. At that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Oh, I got to say something about the book. Can I do that? if I have my notes on the book. Well, it's the same book that is found in Revelation 13, 8, the Lamb's Book of Life. You say, when was the book written? Before the ages began. Is God sovereign in salvation? Yes, he is. Before the ages began. This is the book of life, the Lamb's Book of Life. So, here we are in 12.2. Your people should be delivered. Everyone whose name written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, sometimes it's argued, okay, everlasting life? Are you serious? This life is hard enough. My life, in point of fact, is one long pain in my backside. I am only hoping he cuts me off before life everlasting. And if that's the way that you're thinking about heaven and the prospect of life eternal, allow me to simply point you to verse 2 again and the contours of how this works. According to Daniel 12, 2, there are only two doors and all people go through one door or the other. The first door is called everlasting life. The second door is called shame and everlasting contempt. We don't get to choose whether it's everlasting. It is everlasting. Existence is everlasting. C.S. Lewis said it. I know I'm going to get the quote wrong, but it's, it's immortals that we spend our time with and cut off in traffic and snub. It's immortals. So the second door is shame and everlasting contempt. And I'll hasten to add at this moment that all of us, and when I say all of us, I mean all of us, deserve door two. Every single one of us, by virtue of our selfishness and self-orientation and self-obsession, deserve door two forever. Shame and everlasting contempt. Have you ever been shamed before? You probably lived long enough to be shamed. And I mean like because you deserved it. You know what I mean? Disgraced. Just rightfully, totally embarrassed. Humiliated, discredited. Sure you have. So have I. That moment when it happens is uncomfortable. Especially when you know that you deserve it. 
I remember the look in my dad's eye, my mom's eye, when I was a little boy, deservingly, when they looked at me and said, David, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Shame on you. Shame on you. I had great parents. That image burns into me like you wouldn't believe. I've only heard it a handful of times. I can count on one hand how many times I heard that from mom and dad growing up. It made an impression. Shame is painful. Shame is painful. Shame is also contemporary. It happened to me just this past Friday. Ever hear that story? Good Friday. Took the kids out for some custard at Culver's. And we're turning into the parking lot and I'm jockeying for position to get a, a spot. And there's a gentleman walking through the parking lot and he does one of these. After you. And I'm like, here, I don't want to get in your way. And so I responded to him, no, 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 you. <laughs> and he said back to me, no, after you. <laughs> no, you got a couple of kids in the back seat of the car. It's a day off. You've been home for them for a while, and your, your heart is just in the wrong place as, as you're pulling in. You know what I did to him? I rolled my eyes so he could see it. And I just made this big huff. And then I drove, you know, there's a circle around the gas station, around Culver's. I did it one turn around the gas station and then came back and parked. Well, there's a problem, of course, because per my daughter's request, we were going in to enjoy our custard. We weren't going through the drive-thru. And I'm not going to let her down, so I got to go in. Who, who's there in line? <laughs> this guy. How do I feel? Ashamed. I, rep I wear the t-shirt everywhere I go. I represent you guys. It doesn't happen very often, but I felt terrible. I felt so ashamed. And I, my, feet, my eyes were just on my shoes, and I waited for him to get out of line. And then we ordered. Never, I never talked to him. I felt very ashamed. Shame is painful. But the shame in verse 2 is not just painful. And it's not just temporary. It's everlasting. Everlasting shame and contempt. The God of the universe speaks shame on you forever. In view of that reality, how's everlasting life sounding at this point? Yeah. So, how does one get access to the first door, door number one? Particularly because we've earned door number two. Now you know the answer. We look to Jesus. We look to Jesus. Hebrews 12.2 says, interesting it's 12.2, Hebrews 12.2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God and in an economy of that only God himself can possibly understand. Jesus hung on a cross for six hours one Friday, absorbing the equivalent of everlasting shame and contempt. 
for all of us who would ever turn from their shameful and contemptible sins and put their faith in him. Amen. Amen. He was disgraced in order to offer you grace. He was discredited in order to credit you with his everlasting righteousness. He died and was raised in order that you and I might die to sin and live to everlasting life. To walk in newness of life. Do you know Jesus? He knows you. He knows you. And he bled for people just like you. Will you turn away from your sins this morning definitively and put your faith in him and shut door number two forever? Eternal life begins today if that's you. Do you want to be saved? Romans 10, 9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You need to be saved. You will be saved. Jesus' bodily resurrection is your hope, my hope, our hope for everlasting life. It's our only hope. One final point today. In the end time, Christ himself said that many saints will slumber, but we have so many reasons to stay awake. So third reason, our personal application of biblical prophecy matters greatly to God and others. Our personal application of biblical prophecy matters greatly to God and others. Now I know I've got 10 verses left and I'm, looks like I'm out of time. Let me read the verses and just outline this last section and just throw three applications our way and then we'll We'll be on our way. Daniel 12, starting in verse 3. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal this book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream and he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and he swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, three and a half years, a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the Holy people comes to an end, all these things will be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way till the end. And you shall rest and you shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Guy Runkle did a really good job on the sermon uh, study questions this week. Take a look at all those numbers and have a good conversation with your community group. Uh, some of that I'm going to pass right by. I just want to offer three 
applications regarding biblical prophecy. Our personal application of biblical prophecy matters greatly to God and others. First, our personal application of biblical prophecy matters greatly to God and others. So be wise and shine. And yes, I mean wise and shine. Verse 3 again. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Okay, this is really good news. Remember the context. This is the resurrection of the righteous dead, right? And the folks in question here aren't just believers. They are believers who have been instrumental in the establishment of the faith of other believers. So you say, super. So just like pastors then, right? Pastors? My first answer is, you bet your boots. Faithful pastors. This past Friday at Calvary Memorial Church, John Grunditz preached the gospel. And you know whose heart was pierced? Little seven-year-old sitting next to me. She was lit up. I've never seen Mia respond to the word of God like that. She said to me, Daddy, I think this is my day. This is my day. You bet John got a few texts from me later that night. Faithful pastors, yeah, it's just low-hanging fruit. I mean, just in the course of your ministry, preach the gospel because some people are ready. So yes, faithful pastors. Just pastors? The real answer? Absolutely not. No way. In fact, I know pastors that unless they repent and believe the gospel, they are headed to shame and everlasting Now, this verse is about believers, believers who turn many to righteousness. Think of it this way. If I were to ask you who under God has been most helpful to you, most use of God in your spiritual journey, chances are you might say to me, my mom, my grandpa, my Sunday school teacher, my business partner, my spouse, my coach, my neighbor, my swimming instructor. Exactly. And if they were instrumental in your life, what are the chances that they've been instrumental in the lives of other people too? That's who we're talking about. Ordinary believers shining forever and ever in the resurrection. So if you love Jesus and you love to help others love Jesus, this could be you. Turning many to righteousness. Our personal application of biblical prophecy matters greatly to God and to others. So be wise and shine. Secondly, run to and fro through the pages of Bible prophecy. Run to and fro in the pages of Bible prophecy. Verse 4 says, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Okay, this is a verse that is popularly misunderstood. The popular understanding of verse 4 is that in the end time, transportation and technology will rapidly accelerate, the internet will come about, and the human race will learn more and more stuff. I don't think that's what it's saying. If we simply obey the immediate context, we would never come up with an a interpretation like that. What does the first half of verse 4 say? But you, Daniel, 
shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. What does that mean? This is what's amazing. What that means is throughout most of church history, throughout most of church history, the book of Daniel has been sealed. Concealed until the time of the end. By the way, like if you've ever struggled to ascertain the meaning of Daniel 8 or Daniel 9 or 10 or 11 or 12, you're in good company. Especially last text, uh, last week's text, Daniel 11. I think some, but it's very possible that much of that chapter is still sealed and awaiting final unsealing until the end, closed, just wrapped up and impenetrable. Okay, so how long? Verse 4 tells us, until the time of the end. Now, what does the next sentence say? Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. To and fro where? Right here. In the pages of Daniel's prophecies. What will increase? Knowledge. Knowledge. The knowledge of the prophecies. Now, sometimes you want a heavy hitter to establish this. I'm not a heavy hitter. Uh, Dr. Charles Feinberg is a heavy hitter. He mentored John MacArthur. Does that work for you? Okay. Dr. Charles Feinberg, his sons taught me in seminary, himself a former rabbi turned Christian prophecy scholar, wrote a book on Daniel in 1981, and this is what he says. Daniel was speaking of his own prophecy and the manner in which it would be sealed until the end times. For when the time draws near for those predicted events to be fulfilled, there will be much perusing of the book of Daniel. I love that. A, a running through of the book, as the literal Hebrew indicates. He would know. The guy's Jewish. The definite article is used here. The knowledge will increase. The knowledge of the prophecies of Daniel. Not just knowledge, generally speaking. If our eight months in Bible prophecy have taught us anything, like other than Jesus is coming soon, it had better be something along these lines. We can do this. We can totally do this. God's not playing games. God's not messing around. We can, we can do this. I avoided these chapters for so many years in my life. But what I've learned over these months, oh my. <laughs> and don't you think there's more to come? Of course there is. Of course there is. And that's just Daniel. We haven't touched Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah, Zechariah, Haggai, Malachi. Oh, we got some work to do, folks. Run to and fro in the pages of Bible prophecy. Final application, then we're done. Go your way. Persevere. For the one who endures to the end will be saved. Go your way. Persevere. For the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, there's simply more here than we can unearth in one final application point. Uh, the angels, I believe, uh, uh, and the Lord is here. Um, another reference to the abomination of desolation, time of tribulation, it's all here. I'll leave some of that application to the study notes, but I'd just like to end with a reading. And I want to read Dr. Charles Feinberg once again. Um, here's how Feinberg finishes his commentary on these verses. I want to read verse 13. Verse 13 says, Go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. This is what Feinberg said. Who's with Jesus right now, by the way? He said this. The book of Daniel 
closes with a a tender touch concerning the now aged prophet. He was told to go his way, the way of all flesh. He had lived to see many of his prophecies fulfilled. Others lay far beyond the horizon of his day in the distant future. When God finally sets in motion the consummation of the ages, Daniel will be among those raised in the first resurrection to everlasting life. His body will respond to the Lord's command to come forth into eternal life. And he quotes Isaiah 26, 19, which says, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell on the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Feinberg concludes, Daniel will receive his portion and will lack nothing of the reward that was promised him. And why will he receive that reward? Same reason any of us will. Because Jesus said in John 11, 20, 25, and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Go your way, persevere, for the one who endures to the end will be saved. Well, let's wrap up. In the end time, Christ himself said that many saints will slumber, but we have so many reasons to stay awake. First, Jacob's tribulation is not just Jacob's problem. Second, Jesus' bodily resurrection is your only hope for everlasting life. And third, our personal application of Bible prophecy matters greatly to others. Be wise and shine. Run to and fro in the pages of prophecy and go your way, persevere, for the one who endures to the end will be saved.